Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Brett Kelly. Brett is the founder and CEO of Kelly Partners. He is a best-selling author, public speaker, and chartered accountant. Brett, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Nice to see you, Ike. How are you? Fantastic. Baruch Hashem. I wanted to take you back to um, a moment that I, I guess biographers love these sorts of moments. You're 22. It's yeah. 1999. Mm. You're broke. You're unemployed. Mm. And you decide that what you're going to do is write a book. Yeah. It was 1997. Um, I was working in an investment bank. Um, the boss came and said, you know, can I have five minutes? And, um, you know, when you're the boss, I guess you can have five minutes. So he took me in and said, look, it was the 30th of June, 2000, 30th of June, 1997. He said, um, we've decided to terminate your employment. And he talked for about 10 minutes. And then my mother said, if, um, if you don't, you know, have anything good to say, don't say anything. So I didn't. And then she also said to me, if somebody asks you a stupid question, give them a stupid answer. So he, after 10 minutes, said, well, what do you think about this? And I said, it's not the best start to a day. So then I had um, outplacement services with Morgan and Banks. I went over there and I didn't know what to do. So I went home and my dad gave me two books. One was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. The other one was called Think and Grow Rich. And in Think and Grow Rich, it says, meet people that have been successful and ask them what they did. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but that night I wrote a list of 80 prominent Australians, people from all walks of, of, of life, Peter Brock, H.G. Nelson, Jeff Kennett, Bob Hawke, um, Jerry Harvey, Kerry Packer, Paul Keating, and um, and John Howard, and just, um, I, I, I compiled a letter. It just said, uh, my name is Brett Kelly, I'm 22, I'm unemployed, but I'm keen to learn. Um, if you could spare an hour and answer my 11 standard questions, that would be great. Um, and you know whatever you teach me i'll put in a book and get out to other young people and so i sent those letters out the next day i got people's addresses from the who's who of australia a little book that's been published for many years now on, online and um i sent you know i prepared these letters and i um put them in the mail at morgan and banks and and then over the next three months i made five and a half thousand phone calls to talk them into to to um speaking to me I do remember though that day, um, the lady at Morgan Bank said, you know, why, why are you sending these letters? And I told her the idea and she said, oh, that's a crazy idea. So right up front, I learned that if you've got a, a crazy idea, you shouldn't share that with anyone because they'll only tell you uh, the reasons that you can't do what um, you're planning to do. I call those people cannots. Uh, they're the people that tell you what you cannot do um, as opposed to what you could do. So what I would do is I'd, I had a blank diary. I'd get on the phone, call people up, say, it's Brett Kelly, um, I wrote you a letter, have I got you at a bad time? And they'd say, yep, you have. And I'd say, no problem, so I'd hang up. Uh, before I did, I'd normally say, look, I'll call you back a couple of days at 10 o'clock. And then I would just call back relentlessly every couple of days at the same time <laughs> until I agreed. And if you can be persistent and smile, uh, most people agree. And then, uh, you know, we I, I conducted the interviews very similar to this. I recorded them. I had them transcribed over 800,000 words. Um, and then, you know, I was finding as I went along, some people were more supportive than others. So I never forget I'd done about 12 interviews. And then Bob Hawke said to me, you know, this is a really great project. There's really nothing that you could do that would teach you any more. And so you should keep going. If there's anyone I can help you to get to, let me know. And he opened a number of doors to, to some interesting people. Through that process, I guess, you know, I learned a lot about uh, myself and also, you know, how to work better with people. So there were basically a handful of common objections that were put to me as to why I couldn't do what I was planning to do. I was young and stupid, which helps. Um, basically that I was too young. I had no connections, no ex expertise, um, um, no money and, and, um, and no idea, basically. Um, and so I just learned through the process that you could gather, you know, if you had good intention and a real vision as to what you wanted to do, you could get people around you that did have those things. That did, you know, raise some money to print some books. I um, attracted a group of people who did um, proofreading, um, 
typesetting, design, distribution, PR, um, who all just love the project because I was so crazy and enthusiastic about it. Um, and so they contributed their expertise and their time. Um, and so very soon I had, you know, a group of 10 people, average 25 years experience, 250 years experience. No matter how long you live or I live, you're never going to have that much experience. You're not going to get 250 years of training. You're anything. not. So no. you've got to learn how. And I guess the big lesson was you've got to learn how to work with people because you can't build anything substantial without building a substantial team. And so the key skill, I think, is really working well with people. And was that something that came naturally to you? Or no, did you have to do not at all. It? No, I, look, I, I think like many of us, I, I'd grown up believing that if I, was, if I wasn't smart and if I didn't work hard and if I didn't have technical expertise, then I, then I wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, but as, you know, as I learned, I'd read this book as I started to read, it said, read a book a week, which I've done, you know, for 20 years since that time. And, um, and you know, very consistently is, you know, you can hire, uh, talent, you know, technical skill and there's that saying that talent is cheap. But, you know, what you, what you can't find often is people that uh, are good to other people and are good with other people and really do know how to lead and manage people. That seems to be, I think, the difference that makes the difference and it isn't taught. I had a, you know, I've got an undergraduate degree, I've got a master's degree, I'm a chartered accountant and, and really in none of those programs is there any emphasis on how to work with people, um, how to lead or manage people. Why is that? I think fundamentally society's not concerned with with people, you know, it's concerned with lots of other things, um, but even the nature of the human person and, you know, how they exist or why they exist or, um, you know, I think those those more philosophical questions have been, have, have been left out of the culture to a great degree. You know, mostly it's how to get things done, not why. Right. Um, and so as Western societies become more post um, religious, if you like, of any description. Um, so post-Jewish, post-Christian, post-anything, certainly post-modern. Um, I, I think that there's less emphasis on philosophy, less emphasis on why are we here and what are we trying to do and, and why does that matter? And so, and, and you think that comes through on the practical level of people not being good at treating other people well? Absolutely, because you do a masters of tax, for example, and there's no, not a, not one hour spent on how um, what you learn or how you learn it uh, might be applied for the, you know, in a community context or in a, in a social context. It's just technical stuff. And that's fine if you're teaching somebody how to, you know, how to, um, I don't know, put a, put a nut on a bolt. But um, other than that, really to, you know, to gather people and move people and unlock their their best potential, um, you know, in the pursuit of a of a goal or an endeavour, the the deeper people understand the very strong benefit to the thing that they're trying to do, the more likely those people are to be deeply engaged in the activity and to to be able to to contribute at a level that they didn't even know themselves that they had. So there are stories all the way through human history of people conquering against the odds mm -hmm. and firstly conquering themselves and, and, and being able to bring out more of themselves than they knew they had. And I think that happens where they're put in a situation where, where you know, they can see, you know, a big reason to, to bother. And that's normally when they're going to die, right? There's some bad thing happening and they think, shite, you know, I better, I better better be the best I can be or better, you know, there seems to be more at stake. So, look, that's what I learned. I guess during that time where I didn't have a job and I was writing this book, I read well more than 1,500 books over and, and more than 3,000 over the next decade, 15 years. And and much of the, the reading was really study as to, um, you know, where do we come from? Why are we here? What are we trying to do? And and then if you can bring that to your work in terms of trying to you know, get, get your people to connect the work they do, particularly in a professional context, with the people that they're trying to help, 
then I think you have an uncommon power within your business. You, you mentioned Hill and Carnegie as mm. um, uh, as authors of books that your father had given you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how to win friends and influence people and thinking grow think rich. Think grow rich. Yeah. I remember in one of the early pages of thinking grow rich, Napoleon Hill says something like, "There's only really one secret, and I've tried to embed it in every page of this manuscript, and I can't tell you explicitly what it is, but hopefully you'll learn it." Did you yeah. did you feel like over the years that that secret opened itself to you? Uh, I look. I I I don't know. Uh, I, I think that um, certainly Carnegie was was very strongly on about enthusiasm as being an un, you know, an, une, an a sort of un, unable to be equal power, and uh, you know, and, and maybe Napoleon Hill, his view was that, as far as I understand, was that there were that there's a, a bit of a mastermind that if you get a group of people together and you can work in it, you know, in the interests together in the interest of solving a problem, then you get what he called a mastermind, you know, more than one mind aligned and working together. Um, I think those two ideas are very strong ideas. I think that if you conduct yourself, you know, I say in our business to our guys, you know, we're in accounting, right? Now, most kids don't grow up saying, you know, dad, dad, one day I'm going to be an accountant. Um, um, but I explain to our team and I you know, explain to my own kids that if you can find anything that you will attack with great enthusiasm, then you have a huge advantage over any anyone that seeks to compete with you because most people aren't that enthusiastic about anything, um, their own life, let alone their profession. And and then from a, a Napoleon Hill point of view, the idea that um, if you can get if you can get a one-mindedness, if you can get a, a group of people aligned and get them all thinking together and working together, three heads are better than one, you know. And if you got we've got forty-three partners, well, I reckon forty-three heads are better than one if you can get them to think think together to try and solve the problem. Now, for us, I, I conceived of our business as a social service organisation. You know, how could you, in a business, make other people better off? Um, is the way we put it. So um, I, I believe that if you don't help people, that it, it is unlikely that your business will exist in the long term or any organisation. So mm-hmm. um, with that ethic, um, Rather than a self-service and other service type mindset, um, you know, I've often had young guys come to me and say, "Yeah, Brett, you know, like you, I want to go into business for myself." And I say, "Ha! Well, this is it. I didn't go into business for myself. I went into business to to help other people. And I think that if you do that and you help enough other people, you'll do okay yourself. But it is very hard for people to see to see that often. To say, you know, you've got to find a problem that you're passionate about solving." find a better way to do that thing and then pursue that with great enthusiasm and that if you really do make a difference to people over time, you probably do okay. Um, and that, you know, again, that's that's what I learned dur- during, you know, the, the very first book project. I, I started it in about August um, 97. I published it in August 98. It was a number one bestseller. I did more than 200 professional speaking engagements off the back of it. Oh, wow. I la- launched the book at the National Press Club um, with Natasha Stotzer-Spoyer, who was the youngest Australian senator at the time. Um, and, you know, it just went on very well from there. But when I came back into Chartered County, I did come back with, I think, a deeper appreciation of or understanding of myself, other people, life, the world generally, I'd met a lot of great people um, and they'd been very, very encouraging. So I didn't have the fear that other people have or, or certainly had at that time that that person you couldn't talk to because I was so-and-so or this one you can't because of such and such. I thought, oh, well, I've already interviewed a lot of these people, met a lot of people, have introduced me to a lot of people. So what you do is you treat people a certain way and it doesn't matter whether they are a millionaire, a billionaire or a prime minister or whoever they are. If you treat people well, um, you generally get a very good reception. And so, you know, in 2006, started the firm. Um, and and I would say that we had a very deep philosophical um, basis to the firm. So there was a very clear purpose to the business. Um, and that is my, my belief that, or, or, you know, understanding that 70% of Australians are employed by private businesses. And that if you look after the people that own the businesses, then they will look after the people that are in those businesses and, and that'll help them to look after their families and, and the community generally. And so that if you want to grow employment, then you need to grow private businesses. And, and that was where I had my experience, that was where I had my expertise and what I was very interested in. And from a social point of view, I think that 
employment's very important in that it's hard to live a dignified life without work that you that, that without work and so that gave us a real um, I guess underlying purpose for the business I'd also then seen in my professional practice that I didn't think that customer segment was that well serviced um, and that from a business point of view they did use their advisors for a long time so it was worth investing in in that segment for long-term relationships because these are people that were capable of a long-term relationship um, and uh, you know and then I guess the rest is history we started we built a better system put a great team together and again right back from that book project um, um, I, I had learned I'd written a second book in the time I've written three now every seven years I'm writing another one at the moment that'll come out next year but um, um, I knew up front I had to put a great group of people together and so today you know I had somebody say to me the other day oh you know I'd heard this but Brad I've, I've met your people I can't believe how great your people are and if you have great people um, then you can do anything wow. so that's the game when you when you were starting Kelly Partners that was just about the time is that your second book was coming out yeah so I put I put the second book out in um August um, 2005 and then I started the firm in June 2006. And the second book was um, about fewer people, more of an in-depth study. Seven people that changed the world called Universal Wisdom Um, and that was, you know, a realisation I guess that there are some ideas that I consider are basically universal laws and that the people that have really changed the world are the people that have understood, understood that reality. Despite and the fact that they may be in, in what looks to be very different fields on the surface. Yeah, no question. So a really good example is, um, is say, um, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So they are both trying to achieve the same thing. They are mm-hmm. trying to get, you know, uh, equal rights to, you know, however you want to define it, for, uh, you know, the, the uh, black American um, uh, population. And Malcolm X believes that, you know, through violence you can get there. And Martin Luther King really standing on the patrimony of people like um, Gandhi that he'd been very influenced by, believed that non-violent resistance where you stand on truth is very powerful. And so today in virtually every suburb of America you have a Martin Luther King street and you don't have a Malcolm X street. (laughs) Right. And that's, you know, that's very classical, you know, historical understanding that the ends, you know, don't justify the means, that the means need to be good and the ends need to be good. And, and where that is true, you have an uncommon power. And so, you know, a guy like Martin Luther, I, I think is pretty irresistible, you know, force um, um, of his time and, and, and probably for all time in that you listen to his rhetoric and his speeches. And, and I think that his message is probably are as relevant today as they were then and, and in every social context, sure. probably through all of human history. Um, you flip that and you go and look at, say, somebody like Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, um, great hero of mine as well. And, you know, if you compare him, if you like, to a day trader where, you know, Buffett, you know, read the other day a great quote said, you know, that he, that he thinks of himself more as a farmer rather than a big game hunter. So a big game hunter, that's Wall Street, goes out, you know, kills something, eats it for a couple of days and then looks around and says, geez, what do I eat now? Whereas, you know, others conduct themselves on the basis that you you, you plant seeds every day and, and over time, the more seeds you plant, there'll be something there for you. And that's very much been, been um, my philosophy, very long-term versus short-term. Um, and so they're, they're two really great examples of... Um, I think people that even though, you know, every time the market's down, Buffett's wrong or there's a new trend and he's wrong, but then mm. it turns out that he's right over time. Uh, um, I just looked, you know, I'd been reading all these books trying to work out, you know, what is the pattern that that gives some people really an unstoppable um, um, force and momentum. And these are not, better, you know, that, yeah, um, and they're from all types of endeavour. So ensuring that the means... Are, are worthy in their own, not just in the end, and focus on the long term. Yeah, it's very old, term. very old sort of, you know, I think it was back to the Greek philosophers type ideas, right? Well, if um, they're universal, you'd expect them to show up everywhere. Yeah, they show up everywhere. I think that you, you know, I think that, um, 
yeah, I just think they're great ideas. These are good people and commonly influential. I think Mandela, you know, you had you had Gandhi, Martin Luther, you've got Mandela in that stream of thinking. Um, you've got uh, people like Mother Teresa, who I think, you know, is a, is a universally acknowledged as a, as a humanitarian because she went into a situation where you've got people dead on, you know, dying on the ground and others generally just walking past them and thought that it would be a good example to pick those people up and care for them, even if they couldn't do anything for you, but that, 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 that the human person has value in and of themselves, not just to the degree that you can get something from them. I sure. think that type of example is, is going to have great resonance um, for all time. I think when she died, she had 25,000 nuns in a religious order that was, you know, genuinely a global multinational enterprise, right? 25,000? Yeah, some huge number, right? Jeez. Yeah, and they're full-time people giving their their full efforts to um, to that cause. So I see people like that as having, you know, as as, as knowing something that, that many don't. Um, and I was trying to make sense of, you know, what are the ideas that you should, that you should um, pursue? Did you feel like coming on the back of the second book where you really looked at people like uh, Buffett and uh, like Mother Teresa and like Mandela. Yeah, she's got four and a half thousand religious sisters, right? That's a big business um, by any measure. And these are people that haven't just taken a job, you know, they've, they've given their full, full lives and effort. Um, and, you know, she's a, a female leader, established that order of just looking up on Wiki in 1950 so that's you know that's a that's a, a good effort. Four yeah, and a half thousand is four like and a half thousand more fully than most work. fully committed uh, uh, workers to to the cause, right? So did you feel like like learning her story and learning Buffett's story gave you permission to strike out on your own in some sense and start your own firm? Um, I, I just I, I there there seems to be a natural vein of you know the first book i wrote was called collective wisdom the second universal wisdom the third one's called business owners wisdom i'm writing a new one at the moment and i i had worked out early on in my reading that you know there's a great uh, line you know above all pursue wisdom you know and marcus really and um no it's in the it's in the it's in the torah it's in the old testament and um and essentially um um, you know, uh, uh, defined as deep understanding. He's not a bad, um, not a bad, um, uh, to me, very much resonated, you know, just seek to understand things better and mm-hmm. people better and yourself better. Seemed like a good idea and, and has proved to be in that um, I think often you can get busy and just and, and lose where you're up to it's one of the reasons I'd seen the BBC series called 7up where they film these kids every seven years from I think the age of five and I decided at that point when I'd seen those it's the most successful documentary series in history to write a book every seven years mainly so that I didn't get so busy that I forgot why I was living how I was spending my time and whether I was choosing to put my time into the right the right areas if you like it was a way to to slow myself down and have a look so I'm seeing this first book that you, mm. that you released. Like that, that must have taken a lot of chutzpah to just go out there and just pester these people until you, you got a, a bestseller out of it and all these speaking engagements. By the time the second book comes around, you're thinking maybe there's some familiarity to the book process, but then you turn around and start your own firm, Yeah, Kelly Partners. Do you feel looking back like starting your own firm took more chutzpah than going and talking to all these people? No, the first book was much harder because I didn't have the expertise. I didn't have, you know, by the time I started the firm, I was 29, nearly 30. I'd been working in chartered accounting. Essentially, since I was 18, I went straight from school to Pricewaterhouse. I did nearly five years there. Then I I went to an investment bank, lost that job, wrote my book. So I I was... um, I, I felt... And then I went back into chartered. So... For most of that 12 years post-school, I'd been in charge of maybe 18 months out where I was doing my book. So I felt that I knew the business very, very well. And I'd done my master's and I was a tax agent. I'd done all of that. I also, frankly, had seen that I didn't think firms were that well run, you know. And I, I, you know, I often say to people, 
I basically looked at it and said, could I really do it any worse? Not that I could do it better. Um, as an observation that, you know, often people say, well, what should I do? And, and there's a good little mental trick to say, well, what should you not do? So, you know, if, if you say, well, what, 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 what should you do in order to be a good husband? Or what should you do in order to be a good employer? Or what should you do in order to be a good father? Well, when people go, oh, I'm not really sure, you say, well, that's fine. What should you not do? Oh, well, I probably shouldn't do this. I probably, you know, shouldn't do that. Well, there you go. And so it's often easy to work out what you should do based on what you shouldn't do. So I basically went, you know what? Could I do it any worse? And then I had a number of um, good friends of mine who were big clients of mine who, um, who had been at me for years and said, why don't you have your own firm? And I kind of was like, Oh, I don't know. I'm not really that passionate about about the business, and and they were like, "Well, that's not true. You know, you do a great job for us," and blah blah blah. And, I, and then I thought about it. And I thought, okay, well, I, I was very um, enthusiastic about helping the clients and helping the people and looking after the team that worked with me, um, worked under me, and. Um, because you sort of have a bit of a team and and so I loved that but I worked out that I what you know I remember catching myself as I said to one of my mates I'm not really enthusiastic about the business and he said to me he was a very experienced very very wealthy guy he said yeah yeah but that's because the business you work for is crap <laughs> I went hey that's a bit harsh and he said no no but you know what I mean he said it's not a world class business which is an observation I'd made you know most businesses don't say, how can I be Apple, Four Seasons, McDonald's, um, Walmart, Berkshire Hathaway, um, Google, whatever, you think of them. Any of the great businesses, they don't ask that question. They just are trying to be the average of the average of the average, which is generally below average. They're Stay just, in the middle of the herd and not They're just trying out. to be like everyone else. Yeah. And everyone else is unhappy, generally unfit, and not very wise. You know, we call it healthy, wealthy, and wise here at Kelly Partners. Um, <laughs> and they're not, they're not really, you know, I, I'd be in these firms. I'd be like, okay, the boss, he ain't healthy. He ain't that wealthy. And he ain't even as, aspiring to be wise. So what is to become of me as a young person? I'm going to be a version of that. And I looked, right. at, looked at the boss and went, I can tell you, you know, another question I use with my clients is to say, what do you want to be, you know, when you grow up? given that you're 35 you look fairly well grown so are you that person i remember looking at the boss thinking well i don't want to be that when i grow up i want to be something other than that when you were 18 you said mm. and you started got started accounting mm. did you why did you get started accounting back then um so my father had a business had a uh, accountant in the business in the um in the late 80s early 90s that embezzled a bunch of money as i as i understand and and that caused the business a lot of pain. I remember looking at him, st stressed about it, thinking, geez, you know, he said, well, if I'd been an accountant, and then I, I was going to be a barrister. And then I thought, I want to ultimately go into business. So accounting is probably a great thing to study. And then the more I looked into it, the more that was true. I went in year 11, I think I met the, the guys from the big six chartered firms at that time. And I thought that would probably be a good place to train to go into business. And then I'd been reading everything Warren Buffett had written since I was about 15. And, and then the more I looked at the business as a business themselves, the chartered firms, the better they looked as a business. And then I thought, okay, well, they're good businesses. I really enjoy it. I like helping the people. I've learned a lot. Um, and, and I think, you know, you have to know yourself a little bit in that, you know, the client sort of, I, I was always able and, and have always continually attracted clients and so I thought okay well I must be must be okay at this and um, and what's funny is that you know you're often the last person to know you know you you're just doing what you're doing and it seems to be working out and and it's really other people who often will say to you you know and 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 to that end I'd say you gotta be careful where you take your advice but I always you know look who are the people that I really admired and, and, and I cared what they thought. I didn't really care what anyone else thought, but people I thought I, I very much admired. And I had, I had 
three of those in particular. These were people uh, you knew personally in your Yeah, life. that I knew very well personally that had been, you know, very, very um, successful in their businesses and with their families, which I th- always thought was very important. And, um, and, and they're the guys who I said, you know, I asked when one of my mates said, you should start your own firm. Um, and they all said to me, Brett, you know, we're your clients, we're your friends. We don't know why you haven't. And I was like, well, okay. Um, so what, had, what happened in 2006, I'd helped my mate start a firm up in the Central Coast because he was in a situation, wanted some help. So I started the firm with him. And then three months later, my boss in the, in the firm that I worked in came to me with an offer that was materially different to what I'd been promised a year before mm. when I joined that firm. And so I thought, you know, and then one of the managers there um, that I worked with there said to me, you know, why don't, why don't you just start a firm for yourself like you've started for your mate? And I thought, oh, well, I was just helping my mate, you know. And he's like, well, why don't you help me and start a firm with me? So I went, okay, righto. So I thought about it. Then I spoke to my wife and she was, you know, we had a young child under 12 months at that point, um, Tom. And um, and Beck was like, yeah, Brad, you should, you know, why wouldn't you? You'd be great. And I thought, oh, okay, here we go. And then I spoke to these three clients and mates of mine and all three of them were adamant, you know, just go and, go and start um, your own thing. Not, and, and, and genuinely, I, I had no, you know, five minutes before, certainly a year before, I had no intention of starting a business. Which is, which is strange when you consider, so, like, the, the project of constantly yep. interviewing people yep. who are outstanding in their field. Interesting. So I, I had sort of got this idea that, I should really seek wisdom. I should get wise and understand things. And I would say that um, I do think that, you know, the accumulation of any knowledge or any insight um, or even being on the path to try and understand anything, I think makes you much more likely to be a good leader of people. And so, um, which I think is key if you want to build anything you know, from a business, community, organisation or whatever. But but I think that it's one thing to try and impose leadership. It's another thing, you know, for people to to ask you to lead them. It's mm. quite interesting in that it was my mate on the Central Coast who said, help me start this firm. And he knew I could help him. But I didn't, I didn't really, I, I knew I'd done these books and I knew a lot of stuff, And but he, it was obvious to him. He said, Brett, you know how to do this. You can help me. I thought, well, I haven't started any other chartered accounting firms, but you're probably right. I could probably work that out. Um, And then it was, again, my mate in the firm that I was with who said, you know, I don't know why you aren't starting your own firm because, you know, you should do that with me. Could you do that for me and with me? And I was like, I said, I don't know. I'll have to ask my wife and, you know, think about it. So... I spoke to my wife, spoke to these three mates of mine, and it was very interesting. I went back to him and I said, look, it's really simple. The the only basis on which you should start a business is if you've got great people. And then you really do need to have a great process. You know, you need to have something um, with respect to your process or product, process in the sense of a service or or um, product in the case of a physical product or, or digital product that you think really solves a problem. And I do think I've probably got the people because I know you want to come and there was a couple of others that were pretty interested that had come to me and I said nothing to them. I was just like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, and, um, and then I had developed a way in my mind of thinking about the client that I used but I hadn't written down. And so I thought, oh, there's a much better way to do this because the way it's been done, this firm, the way firms do business is just hopeless and um, then I thought oh, I could probably work that out so I on that basis I then spoke to my three mates and then and then thought oh, okay yeah I'll give that a go and then it wasn't with you know with any great um, with any great um, sense that this was going to be the most awesome thing ever I just literally said okay I don't think I could do this worse than what I've seen in the industry yeah I thought I think I'd probably do a bit better. I'm a bit more serious than the average bear, and I'm and I'm a worker. I, you know, I very much commit to things, um, 
and I thought, you know, I reckon we, I reckon me with a good team, we could probably work this out. Did you ever consider starting a firm other than accounting, or was no. it always accounting or both? No, I, I, um, I wasn't even, you know, I thought, yeah, I thought um, maybe one day I would run a business, and I had a lot of people who, because of, you know, I had done hundreds by this time um, of speaking engagements to big or big audiences all over the joint um, from very, very large companies and to everything else. I'd done uh, 200 Rotary Clubs. I'd done church halls and synagogues. I'd done everything, right? Um, community groups, many, many, many large corporates. And so many people had said, oh, well, they, you know, they expected me to be running something. But me, myself, I was just trying to get good at something. You know, and I, I didn't have the view that um, uh, that that you should be, um, you know, trying to do something until, hand on heart, you knew you could make a genuine difference to the client. What were you trying to be good at? Understanding people. You know, um, so you need to understand yourself is the is the real hard part. And then, and then understanding people because I couldn't see any business that you could grow that didn't involve really being able to work with people. And so I was really working on understanding myself in terms of what I wanted to do and what, what, what I came to regard as what gave me energy versus what took energy away from me. Um, and so that takes some effort to sort of observe yourself and think I, I really, you know, seem to have a huge amount of energy when it comes to doing that. When it comes to doing this, I kind of have no energy, um, is the way I kind of thought about it in my mind. Because if you can find the thing that really gives you energy, you can just outwork anyone and, and your brain's switched on and, and you seem to be able to get a huge amount done where other people seem to be spinning their wheels. And was there a moment for you, like a light switch moment? No. Like, this is what... No this is what gives me energy or was it just a gradual process? Of- no, I just worked out that helping people. Right. At the end of the day, I, because of my makeup, I don't get into situations where I don't feel I can look after myself. I, you know, I've got, you know, I come from a big family of eight kids and I'm right in the middle and, and they're all boys and I just grew up very self-reliant. Um, so I, I, I always didn't really think I needed to worry about myself. I needed to worry about who else I could help. Sure. It just seemed to be the way I grew up. So what, what that meant was I worked out that, if, that I liked to help other people and, I, and that I did genuinely have. Um, I remember I was interviewed on television with Bob Hawke and they, and they asked him, you know, what do you like about this guy? And they, they said this guy got chutzpah. And I, was like, and I was 22, I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And I looked that up, I kind of worked that out. And, um, but I always had great certainty and great drive to do things. And I could say to somebody, mate, you'll be okay. And they would feel okay. And so I, I, I have great certainty and I'm able to give other people, particularly in, in moments where they're under a lot of pressure, real certainty. And I'm a real fighter, a real brawler. So I will get in in situations and really help people when it's hard, not when it's easy, and um, not just when it's easy. So um, that you know seemed to me that um, that's a very very unique uh, sort of gift to have. In that um, a lot of people, when it gets very hard, they they don't handle pressure well. They make rash decisions. A lot of advisors certainly have got no ticker, so they'll just disappear. And the client sort of, where'd my accountant go? It's got heart now and can't find him, or lawyer or whatever. Um, and so um, that's what I worked out is that, um, now that's particularly helpful in growing a business. So when you're trying to grow a business, as you'd know, there's the gap between where you are and where you'd like to be. And that, that big gap of uncertainty um, when you're working with partners is, it needs to be filled with something. And it's best to, to fill that startup gap uh, with certainty. And so if you've got a partner who is certain that it'll work, then you can just apply yourself to the job at hand rather than worrying about, you know, is it gonna work? It's like, mate, if you do push-ups, 
you get muscles. So let's just do the push-ups. Right. Let's not ask how big the muscles are going to be. I don't know how big the muscles are going to be, but I do know that if you do push-ups every day, you'll end up with muscles. So in startup situations, you manage to be the certainty guy. I'm the, I'm the certainty guy. A clear plan <laughs> and a, a, you know, a complete ridiculous willingness to just work, to really work. I don't work Sundays, but I work every other day and I just work. I'd get in when we started at 3.30 in the morning, every morning, and I would work till 7.30. I'd go home, I'd have half an hour's dinner and I would work till 11 and then I would get up and go again. It was easy because we had a young baby that needed to feed every three and a half hours. So he'd only sleep for about three and a half hours. So I'd go to sleep when he cried, I'd wake up, pick the baby up, give it a back and go to have a shower and go to work. Now, if you do that, which I did for about 18 months on that tempo, um, then you can build something. And, you know, we plan to do, I remember we had this little plan to do 400,000 turnover in the first year, 600 in the second and 800 in the third. And I think in the first year where we planned to do 400,000, we did um, 4.2 million. So we did two and a half, about 2.7 organic and we put, and we bought a couple of little firms. So I, I'm the certainty guy who will, you know, work hard to do the thinking to you know, have clarity around mission and values and vision and work out the strategy, structure the thing, document it. But then when we go, I'm the go guy. You're certainly go. Yeah, and so that helps because from sure. a team point of view, from a leadership point of view, you can get your team around you and just get on with doing it. Now, if you, if you actually um, spend the time working on the work rather than stressing about the work, you know, I, I meet a lot of startup guys and they're like yeah but what happens if this happens and what happens if that happens and it is all virtually a truism but it's also virtually a truth that you do get what you focus on the most and so if you can really control your focus and you have a, a viable plan uh, and remember I wasn't talking about a shoot for the sky you know get to a billion valuation in yeah. three months uh, it was, it, you know, people have built chartered accounting firms before. It's been done before. You might be able to do it faster or better, but it was really just a question of, of we, we do have, I think, quite thoughtful, good process and insight. Um, but then once we'd worked out what needed to be done, you just need to do it yeah. and not be, oh, you know, do you think I should raise more money or what happens if this happens or what about that? Now, I would also say that in that process, I was lucky because I'm very blessed in that Beck, my wife, is um, an accountant by background and had, he, had Tom, a young child, and then a year and a half later, we had Nick. So she had two young kids under three for a while there. And and again, she was just an unstinting support. She just said, yep, yeah, no worries, but I know you can do it. And so that's it. Never complained when I was never there because I would just work, um, which... I think a lot of a lot of people trying to do these, you know, to get a business going, often have, you know, they've got one of the partners saying, oh, well, you pick the kids up this day and I'll pick the kids up that day. I never did any of that. Right. Right? I said, you were just in the office. Well, going. I just said, look, you know, you do the kids and I'll do the business and, you know, when the kids are five and they go to school, if you want to come and do the business, you can do the business. But that was, that was a decision, you know. That's what... Beck was happy with and and you were fortunate to have your your flank secured as it was yeah you're not having look a lot of I think guys and girls are fighting you know on two fronts they're trying to build a business which is a brawl right Mm. it's a war against yourself and the market um, to do what you know needs to be done but they're also trying to be some sort of modern partner that drops the kids off and picks the kid up you can't build in my experience a business between nine and three you just can't and so you shouldn't try and do that if um, if you don't have a domestic situation that's that's tolerant of that. Sure. Genuinely. And and I'm not saying that that has to be the guy or the girl. I don't care whether it's a guy or the girl doing it, but but it is very very difficult um, to to build a business and and have young kids at the same time and and both people be be working. That's you know working outside the home. It's interesting that you you pick these two particular traits of um, hard work and being the certainty guy, as you put yeah. it. Because um, I think I've heard a lot from people who are hard workers. They're yeah. very uh, self-reflective. They know the hard workers and they yeah. can tell you the hard workers. 
but people who are, as you say, the certainty guy, yeah. they um that does they don't seem to be able to like recognize them themselves. They just yeah. feel confident and can't understand why other people aren't. Yeah. And so I fully understand why other people aren't. I get that. Right. Um, it it has taken me years to understand that, and I have seen it with clients where, you know, you do the numbers. They know what they want to do. They can see where the opportunity is. Um, they know that there's some risk, but the risk can be mitigated. So you've done all of the work, but then they do need and they do want, you know, a, an advisor who will say, mate, you can do it. And we'll be there to help and make sure that, that you put your best foot forward. And, and if there is a very tough, difficult situation where um, things haven't worked out for people that you will get in with them and help them and 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 help them through those difficult times which everyone has um, um, is is in, is important and you know this friend of ours is having a baby and she was saying to my wife you know well I'm really first time baby I'm really worried about the birth and I'm, and my wife said yeah but that, you know if somebody had said to me it's only one day. So you just need to get through that day and then everything's great. <laughs> and so, you know, those sorts of perspectives of being able to look long-term and not lose focus on where you're trying to get to, it does it does um, take away the, the immediate sense of fear or dread or pain or, or, um, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, this is fascinating. I could uh, stay here and chat with you all afternoon, mm. but we are running low on time. Okay. Can we please, in the uh, short version, what's going on with Kelly Scholars? Uh, so Kelly Partner Scholars. So, look, one of the things, I guess, through this, this story I've shared is that I've always been inspired by great people that have done amazing things. And so um, I, I had seen, I'd always thought the Rhodes Scholarship Program was unbelievable and quite world-changing. Um, and then, um, and then I saw um, um, Steve Schwartzman, who had built um, um, Blackstone, and um, he had started a um, a, um, a scholarship program to take young people to Tsinghua University in China. So, Rhodes Scholarship was at Oxford, and. And Schwarzman said, you know, the future involves China and we've got to do more to get young leaders to, to China. So he put about 300 million US into that program, takes 100 kids a year, and it's an incredible program. So I saw that and I thought, well, look, Schwarzman's about 70. And, and I do feel with a lot of philanthropy is that a lot of philanthropy is, you know, um, people ransack the city and then they, they, they give the street lamp back. Um, <laughs> uh, and so... I thought that it's probably better to, you know, the, the great, you know, the winner from giving is the giver. There's great satisfaction in that and, and untold. And, and so, uh, so I thought, well, look, Steve's done that. I saw the Rhodes Scholarship. I've always been very passionate about education. I knew that at school there was nothing in particular for, um, for, um, for, people that were interested in business as I was as a kid. And so I designed with the Australian Israeli Chamber of Commerce after I was in Israel last October, seeing the startup sort of community in Israel, said, look, AI is gonna change the world. Technology is changing the world. A lot of jobs will disappear. People need new ideas, they need new skills. And so um, why don't we take five kids from year 11 um, and and send them to, um, and send them to Israel to study entrepreneurship, but with, in particular, with a, a social impact mindset. So, how can um, business be be a force for good in terms of um, transforming and taking on some of the toughest challenges in community? So, whether it's wind, um, you know, wind energy or wave powered energy, or, or there's some amazing things being done out there. And so, basically, I got the AICC. Um, we've committed. Um, half a million bucks over the next 10 years to send five kids a year from Mariah for um, each year and then the Mariah Foundation have, have, have come on board as well um, uh, to help fund the initiative and we've designed um, together with the academics of Mariah something that, that I think is really world class so we've sent two groups so far um, uh, so this year and, and, and in 2017 um, 
And what I'm hoping is that over 10 years, at least, we'll have a cohort of 50 young kids that have really seen something different and that those kids will be motivated to do something constructive that makes a difference. And so, you know, the idea was to do, do, um, to build a philanthropic program that I think over the next 20 years, 25 years, um, can just grow and grow and grow and be really amazing rather than wait, you know, until I'm 70 and then um, try and do something. And look, the, the comment I'd have there is that most people wait to give until, you know, they've got so much stuff that they've realized that the stuff isn't what makes a difference anyway. And then they go, geez, I better give, you know, do some giving five minutes before they die. Yeah. Um, when in reality, particularly in Australia, all of us have got much more than we need. Um, and, and to the degree that you can make, you know, following really the theme that I've, you know, that I feel very strongly is, is what you should center your life about is that if you can make other people better off, you don't end up worse off. And so, you know, I've met interesting people. I've made a difference to young people in the business, whether it's Mariah or wherever else. And really, that's the richness of life. It's not. It's not anything else. You know, challenging yourself to, 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 um, to, to make a difference is, um, and, and make sure other people are better off isn't a bad thing. So that's what I do. May you be very blessed with great success in that. Appreciate it. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.